This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be speaking with leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is Amber Lewis. To the outside world, Amber is an interior designer. Behind the scenes, her business is a complex operation with more than 100 employees tackling everything from retail shops, product design, and e-commerce to books, licenses, and residential projects. Amber has grown it piece by piece over the past decade, bootstrapping the company without outside funding. I spoke with Amber about the challenges of turning creativity on and off at will, running a big business with a small business mindset, and how a serious medical diagnosis gave her a new perspective on work and life. This podcast is sponsored by Leloy, maker of rugs, pillows, and wall art for the thoughtfully layered home. Leloy believes that the home should be both a place of refuge and inspiration, which is why their fall rug collections were designed for spaces worth savoring. There are stunning new handwoven rugs and family-friendly power-loomed pieces, many of which are in stock now. Explore all that's new at leloyrugs.com slash new. That's L-O-L-O-I rugs.com slash new. And stay in the loop by following them on Instagram and TikTok at at Rugs. This podcast is also sponsored by Las Vegas Market, the premier furniture, home decor, and gift market. Held semi-annually in January and July, Las Vegas Market is the place to explore and engage with thousands of resources and products. Sources and sharing are made simple for buyers, designers, and exhibitors, with unique and distinguished brands presented across hundreds of showrooms and temporary exhibits. Attendees can enjoy an efficient, effective, and exceptional market experience, shopping across categories in an incredible city. To learn more and pre-register for Winter Market, January 29th through February 2nd, go to lvmkt.com slash register. And now, on with the show. You and I were talking the other day about some some time a, a while back when you were first when you were first traveling uh, away from your away from your daughter and you and your husband uh, went off on your on your own but I know that that you've since been traveling a great deal and yes. uh and recently you were at you were at High Point Market for uh for quite a few things that were going on there that seemed to have your name actually on them tell me a little bit about that so High Point is a fun one. I had actually, ironically, never been to High Point until I started launching things. So it, it's been really, I was telling you, I'd never really done markets until I started having to be there for reasons. So it's been really interesting to kind of like get to know people in the industry. Yes. And the last two times, there's quite a lot of fanfare. So it's it's going to be really interesting when I go in a couple of years and no one cares anymore. So <laughs> to get really lower my expectations of this year. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And it will be hard for you to adjust to coming to High Point when there aren't giant posters <laughs> of you. Not not every participant at market gets gets the, a billboard. The, well, oh. yeah, yeah. So that will be a bit of a yeah. come down for you. Should you go in an off 
year for for you but uh <laughs> but but i'm i'm glad that you're i'm glad that you're meeting so many people and i gather long lines form where wherever you appear i definitely brought a very interesting fun crowd so you know my people are definitely a lot more uh i'm gonna say down to earth a mm. little bit more rough around the edges right we like to we like to party if you will um and i did a book signing at visual comfort and one of the first like four or five people in line asked me to sign her breasts in which i did yes so <laughs> and you proceeded to go right along with that and said yes i sure did because i will i party like i said those I, you are know, your people I like to have a yes <laughs> I definitely bring the interesting folks for sure <laughs> to all of my events. But I mean, to be honest, I couldn't imagine it any other way. I'm so not a buddy daddy person. I'm not very much, you know, I like to shake up the scene a little bit. You do draw a, a crowd. I still don't understand why, but what? I'll take it. <laughs> I love it. And is that how you feel? I still don't understand why. Well, I mean, to a degree, 1000%, because I also have this bizarre um, idea that we're all friends, of course, right? <laughs> These are all my real true yes. life friends. So it's hard when I meet people in person and they're, they know so much about my life and I know nothing <laughs> about theirs. And it's just kind of weird because it's, you know, you don't want to only just talk about yourself. You're like, how are you? And I don't know them. So they're like, well, I'm good. <laughs> and do you feel that that is, part of what made you so successful was that you were willing to share as much as you did over the years? Sure. And I think it, you know, to be fair, this wasn't, it wasn't a thought out process. It was mm. just the most authentic way I could be. And I'm sort of, I'm the same person on social media, in person. You know, I'm a mom, I'm a human, I've got ups and downs and I share, you know, a lot, a lot. <laughs> and it's funny because I don't, ironically, I said this the other day, I really don't even share that much. I think I probably share about 20% of my actual real life. You know, it's right. just this much. Yeah. As all of us on social media, we tend to share the highlight reels. <laughs> well, and, and we should explain for, for listeners. So imagine not everyone might not know who you, who you are. We should explain yeah. how you first got started and and what you were imagining when you first began, whether it was documenting the dad building us a house project or or sort of yeah. what the, what the early days were for you. I um, got my start very strangely. Like I knew I loved art and design, and I knew I wanted to be in it in some form or another. So. I went to UCLA um, Extension and tried to do the interior design program there. And I quickly realized, like, I hate school and I can't do this. I didn't really want to do this. I didn't really. I mean, I'm really, like, not setting the best example for anybody who doesn't know me. But I was a dropout and felt like I could do this on my own by working for somebody else. Yes. I was like, I'm just going to go boots on the ground and figure it out. So that's exactly what I did. I started working for a designer um, in Malibu. She was incredible and I learned a ton and I started to dabble. I just had my daughter. I started to dabble in like the blog world. So I started blogging basically 
DIY projects and how we were doing things and how I was decorating my spaces and it got some attention. So other bloggers started to repost. So yeah, I started documenting it that way. And then one thing led to another and started getting clients, um, which seems crazy, but that's kind of just how it happened. I'd start getting emails like, Hey, will you come do this room for me? Yeah, sure. And then I would you know, document it, basically just put it on the blog. It wasn't even right. Instagram yet. I wasn't really yeah. even doing anything the way that we show it now. That's sort of how it all kind of clicked and started. And one of my first projects uh, was I was reached out by Sunset Magazine and they shot it with Lisa Romerine and which is like such a phenomenal photographer. And that was my first kind of foray into really professional interior design it got posted or it got published in sunset magazine early january 2013 and then the rest is history well it it's interesting so recently we've been we've been talking with with various people who got their got their start by blogging and often today people want to sometimes use it as a backhanded oh she was, she's a blogger oh she's an influencer and it's a it's a pejorative yeah. term right but for you it was this incredible launch pad and to your credit you spent nights learning wordpress and photoshop and right and yes taught yourself all of the tools that you would need to tell the story yeah 100% and i really felt like my style or the way that i was decorating felt not unique in a way that wasn't out there, but it felt like it was a voice, right? Like I mm. had a very clear voice and there was people who were really drawn to it back then. And so I just started to focus on um, cleaning that style up, really figuring out what my voice was going to be. And then I sort of didn't ever waver. And I've been told by so many people like that aesthetic has really filtered into so many other aesthetics, really, like just as a whole, like that thing that I started to do so many years ago is now such a staple in how people design. And I think that that's one of the most flattering and awesome things about being able to document so much of what I've done is because I can go back and look at like where that started. And I could feel really proud of like, oh, I did that. Like I did that kind of back in the day. And then, you know, and then it became such an aesthetic that was recognizable. And I feel like, you know, so much of that started with be, being able to share it and kind of document that. Well, and how do you articulate what that aesthetic is? Because you're absolutely right. It suddenly became your look and you felt like surely this must have existed in the universe before, but until you had sort of put this stamp on it and so many people yeah. just connected it with you and what you were doing, it was like they had never seen white before or they had never, right? I mean, <laughs> what? wait, what? <laughs> and pattern mixing and yes. using vintage and stuff that like that had been done by many people for many, many years, but it was doing it in a way that felt potentially more fresh or, hmm. or updated or young or whatever. And I would say that the best way to describe my style is it's got to be very livable. I really was lucky enough to grow up in a generally affluent neighborhood town, if you will, um, and got to see some of the most beautiful homes. And what I always loved were the homes that felt the most like you walked in and you smelled like things cooking in the kitchen and nothing was too precious. And there was a hundred animals around and there was kids everywhere and it was crazy. And there was sandy feet on you know tables and nobody cared. And that was truly the cornerstone 
of how, and still how I design. I never want anything to be too precious. I want it to feel approachable by kind of making that a formula really and making it a little bit more accessible, I think is probably where the success of, um, of the aesthetic has really come from because it's not a hard one to achieve. It's especially if you're doing it with just some really simple principles in mind, right? Pattern, texture, comfort, not too fussy, livable. And did the time that you worked for, and forgive me, I'm forgetting the designer's name, who you worked for, Kristen Marie, was that her Kristen name? Kristen Marie, yes, yeah. Kristen Marie. Right, so Kristen Marie, it sounds as if she gave you a, a good foundation Yes and no. So I had a really unique experience there because I was essentially just hired almost as a freelance to pull things like fabrics and help with installations, mm. but I was never really introduced to any of the back end. So that was all stuff I had to learn on my own and I had to cut my teeth literally figuring it out. So Google searches and just like hoping I was going to land on some kind of interesting information. Um, but I got to, she would send me to places like the Pacific Design Center and she would make me go to, you know, beautiful stores like Hollywood at home. And, mm. and so I was able to be exposed to a ton of different styles and her style as a designer is, is similar to mine in that it's also like comfortable and beachy kind of, but mm. she had a lot more of like a clean aesthetic. Her aesthetic was very much her. So it was awesome to kind of design for her and me to be able to decide, Oh, this is actually what I really like. And this is what I would do. And this is how I would do it different. And so I was able to do that kind of working for her. Yeah. And then as you were saying earlier, people just began to reach out to you and ask you to do projects. And and then you got published in, in Sunset, as you talked about. And, and then, I mean, again, it always seems looking back as if everything just caught fire and, and you were just going nonstop after that. Yeah. How was it really? What what really started to happen incrementally for, for you and the business? So I think for me, I had the focus on clients, but then I also had this other side um, interest in a lot of those pillows and rugs and the things that I was using as like, you know, my foundation of my designs to, to sell them. Like I mm. had people reaching out and being like, hey, would you, where'd you get that pillow? Can I just buy it from you? And so there was this very different avenue that all of a sudden started to come to my doorstep, really, of people asking, actually, I love that. Can I actually purchase that? So I really started getting into Instagram and essentially would do these Instagram sales. I would buy pillows or I would have, ironically, I had my nanny when my daughter was asleep sewing pillows out of vintage <laughs> fabric that I was, and I would sell it. So I'd be like, okay, well, I'm not making any money doing client stuff right now. Uh, I'm going to make a pillow and I'm going to sell this pillow. And I would. And it started to be a snowball effect of all of a sudden I was selling one a week and then 10 a week. And then I thought, well, I'm going to just open up an office and do appointments out the front where I could have like pillows and rugs and furniture few pieces of furniture and sell them, see if designers would come. I'm just going to give it a whirl. And they did. And um, So we were having, at first, when I first announced that I was going to have this like little small shop in the valley in Woodland Hills, I would have like one person come in a month or two people, whatever it was. And then it was every single day. So 
I quickly realized that that was not going to be possible for me <laughs> to continue that in our tiny little space. So that's when I opened the first door and really started focusing on the e-commerce side of the business too. Um, and it was around this time that my husband, Mike, he decided to jump on board and help me because he was starting to realize like, oh, you need help. <laughs> so it was really when he came on, him and I started to kind of really come together and really formulate a plan of like, we're going to open this retail. We're going to really focus on e-commerce. We're going to build this platform and see where it goes. And so two or three years after we opened the first and then we opened the third and then we opened the fourth and here we are. <laughs> We're taking a quick break from the show to remind listeners about Las Vegas Market. When you choose to attend Las Vegas Market, there are opportunities to look, learn, and enhance the market experience. With an easy-to-navigate campus in a fun and memorable destination, sourcing products has never been more enjoyable. At Las Vegas Market, inspiration and exploration are everywhere with distinct products across hundreds of showroom floors and opportunities to discover contemporary brands. Pre-register at lvmkt.com slash register and join them this winter from January 29th through February 2nd. And now, back to the show. So let's tell listeners where we are today as we describe the full business now that is yeah. Amber Interiors and the shop, because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, there's over a hundred people working for you now. Yes. We now, our e-com platform is quite um, large. <laughs> I would say we have uh, a lot of people working on the back end of that warehouses that kind of have that stuff stocked that we're shipping out of every day. And then we have four retail locations with plans to open at least two or three more over the next two years. And my design firm is still really my baby. I love it so much. And I have actually a very small, I call it my tiny but mighty design <laughs> firm. We're at seven designers. And then the shop itself is just a whole other beast. That's one of those things I can't even wrap my head around some days. It's it's so huge. And, and and despite all of the challenges that retail has had over the years, it, it it seems like you're very much feeling like there's a future for more stores, there's a demand for more stores and yeah. people want to show up and do business in person. You know, here's the deal. I hate the only online culture. I think there's mm. of course, you know, I'm I love our e-com platform. It's amazing. I want it to feel as immersive as possible. I want people to know that they're getting something that's special and important. But I also love the idea of walking into a store and feeling completely encapsulated by what that store is. And so I so believe in the retail experience and the model of having stores because otherwise you're just purchasing things online, which feels so disconnected to me. And I think, call me a little woo-woo, but I do feel like buying something that's an investment piece should potentially be done in person if you can, right? So by offering more locations, that's what I'm hoping 
to do. The online experience is awesome, but if you walk into a store, it's it's definitely different. Exactly. And and that was always the great thing about great stores. And as you yeah. were talking earlier, you had the great experience in the early days of your career, going to Hollywood at home, seeing what Peter Dunham and his team do there. I, I was just recently in LA going to Harbinger, going to see Joe Lucas and yes. the show yes. that they put on there, the mix of vintage pieces and fabrics. Yes. and Right? And I look at the chair that you're sitting in right now. Yeah. Right? That is such a perfect example of you can't wait to go and touch that chair. Yeah. Right? And you, you've you seen it and you know that chair, sure, but that chair is to be felt. And sat in and yes. comfortable. Yes. Yes. And you have to take my word for it, of course. I'm not going to design something that's uncomfortable, but also if you have the ability to go to make that decision on your own, you should. You absolutely should. You're going to live with this piece. And these are investment pieces. I, I couldn't agree more. Tell me about the furniture because you, you actually started making a, a lot of things. Yes. Right? So talk yes. about that. Yeah. So the demand kind of quickly became um, to just expand the line. So we really started with small stuff. It was a lot of vintage stuff. We maybe had like a couch or a bed and not a ton. And we wanted to just almost like test the market when we first opened the Calabasas store. And it became... Like we have this bed that we've had for years and years called the penny bed. And we were selling one and then two and then it was expensive. So I was like, maybe, you know, I got to see if this works. And it did. And I think we started getting more designers coming in, demanding, wanting to do like CON pieces. And so the line just quickly expanded to include so many pieces of furniture. Um, that model and the, the furniture has, has really kind of grown above and beyond. And I still have my hands very much so in in designing the pieces. Well, and so tell me about, so earlier you were saying the design side is, is your baby and with that small yeah. but, but mighty team. So how how do you divide your time and what yeah. what is the most satisfying and rewarding for you versus the things that are less so? here's the problem with being a creative is sometimes you have a day where you wake up and you're on fire and you're like ready to conquer the world. You're ready to get your to-do list done and you feel organized and you're ready to answer every email that you've missed over the last however long. And then there's other days you wake up and you're not in that mood. As a creative, you sometimes have to switch on a switch that does not want to be switched on. And it's, yeah. it's definitely tough. So like I'm pulling for a client right now, I have a big presentation on Friday and We've had all this time in the calendar and sometimes those days that we have, you know, earmarked for design, I don't want to that day or I don't feel like it. So it's truly, yeah. it's a really complicated thing because it has to be unique. Otherwise it becomes a formula. You just crank out the same shit you already saw, right? It's like, right. okay, well, this is easy and it's not, you're not really finding creativity. So I've tried over the last you know, two, three years to really focus in on when I'm doing these projects, I'm allowing a lot more time for myself to feel like I can be creative and not just doing the easy. I want to think outside the box a little bit. So mm. when you're asking me about dividing my time, I try to make sure that the design part of it, even though we're moving very, very quickly on so many things, I'm really having to delegate a ton and not let myself kind of hold up the process of what I know to be true, which is we have a deadline, we have a we have to 
get X and Y done by a certain time or we're going to be in trouble. So I try to allow the team who are incredibly talented to bring things to me way more and let me edit instead of being solely responsible for coming up with those ideas anymore. Right. So we're kind of like, it's almost like they're laying the foundation for me and I'm able to then take where we're at and mix it up in a very methodical way. They know what it needs to look like. They're Mm -hmm. sending it to me in that way. We're sitting down, we're talking about it. And then I'm able to go back in when I'm feeling like that creative and start coming up with different ideas Mm. than what I've been presented thus far, or just keeping them as is because they're great because my team's awesome. And then with everything else, the shop side, you know, we have an incredible leadership team. So my time there is really just coming in from an aesthetics perspective. And then, you know, we have the licensing and the, uh, and the author side of it. There's, there's other small facets <laughs> of this business. <laughs> Writing a book. <laughs> that was fun. Uh, a second one, which I just completed the manuscript for that one. It's called Call It Home and that will be out in October of 23. So that that's where I've been dividing some time too, and then my licensing and my partnership project. So you asked me, how do I divide my time? I don't really know. I kind of have to go fly by the seat of my sure. pants. Nothing really takes precedence. I think clients will always take the number one spot. My team comes next. So just like literally business matters. So with a hundred employees comes a hundred other people's lives. So you have to make sure that you're allowing enough time to connect with people in a way that, you know, feels important, as important as it can be with so many people. I'm curious, when you think about the design business itself, how many projects do you take on? What, how many projects do you usually have going on at any given time so that I can get a sense of how big that that operation is? Yeah. So we recently just decided uh, we had a lapse in sanity for sure and decided with my <laughs> tiny team to do a hotel project. And it is a beast of a project. I think it's a, it's 139 rooms. It's a wellness spa. It's three oh restaurants. God. Oh my it's God. Pool. Where is this? It's in Lake Arrowhead, actually. So ironically, I bought my 2020 crazy purchase was a cabin in Lake Arrowhead. And then little did I know. Months later, got reached out by the brand that bought the hotel and said, hey, would you be interested in designing it? They didn't even know that I had bought the house up in Arrowhead. So To get away from it all. She bought the house to relax and get away from it. Yes. The- yeah. No, now I got to work down the street. I guess I, I couldn't get out of that one. <laughs> but no, we took on a hotel project, which has been a beast for sure. Yeah. Um, and then, I don't know, I think we have about anywhere between... 16 to 20 projects at any given time. Majority are ground up builds now. We used to do a lot of remodels and and we still do for sure. But Mm. the majority of our projects right now are all from the ground up builds. And when I say ground up, I mean, we do everything. So it's a long term. It's a marriage. All these clients are essentially, we're all married. (laughs) One big happy family. (laughs) Well, and, and how has that part of the process been for you? Good. I think that now I'm at a place in my career potentially where there's not a lot of confusion of what you're getting. Mm. Because I've been so out there, I don't think you're going to hire me if you're not well aware that it is a little bit less 
rigid, you know, I'm not going to, I'm professional by all means. Yes. Of business, of course, of course. Clearly. But I want to have fun. Yes. Like I told you, this is these long ass marriages. Like yes. you're in this, you're yes. their financial advisor, you're their marriage counselor. It's crazy. You're just in people's lives. So I think it's, it's, you know, it's a lot of just being very compassionate and understanding that, yes, this is so stressful. And when you're shelling out that amount of money on a regular basis, you get tired. As a client, you get tired and you are over it and understandably so. So it's just trying to remind them it's going to be beautiful. It's worth it. You know, you set expectations, you remind them that the expectations were set, and then you just support them throughout the process to remind them we're going to get there, I promise. And and it, it does seem such an important part of the process to keep it fun, to keep it engaging, right? To keep yeah. them interested and, uh, and, and give them just en enough in involvement where they do feel they're really part of the process besides just writing those, those giant checks and, and all of that. And I also, yeah, and it's a luxury business and it's also a service industry. So I always try to remind not only myself, but really, or make sure that the clients feel comfortable knowing that unless you really want to hear about all the shit that's hitting the fan behind the scenes, then fine, you can, but it's not going to make the experience <laughs> enjoyable. Let us deal with it before right. it comes to you, right? So you can get a Cliff Notes version of what's going on. It's our jobs to literally put out fires all day long every day and recalibrate things all the time. You don't have to be in that process with us. Well, and and I'm curious, we were talking earlier, all the things you outline for clients about the many challenges of this of this process. Do you outline all of the expense side of this as well. Many designers have different models for how they describe how they're going to charge and whether they're going to mark up purchasing or whether there's a design fee. How do you sort of present the the Amber Lewis interiors way of, of doing things when it comes to all of that? It's definitely not a science because every project is different. I mean, we try to do averages. So we'll look at the last project and assume kind of like a, what we think it's going to cost per square foot really. Mm. Um, and break it down that way to clients. And that's just for things like FF and E, um, not necessarily time. The time budgeting portion of it is, is actually really tough because if something gets extended to no fault of us, if the contractor takes a project that was supposed to be two years and it's now three years that's another year that we're project managing the job so we try to i try to keep my hours really low because i'm obviously the most expensive in the company so my involvement really i try to just like lessen the blow if you will by mm. not charging for every single thing i'm doing after a certain time frame as long as you know everyone on the team is kind of being compensated for their time and knowing that like we're still working really hard. I don't necessarily need to charge for every time I check in or every time I do whatever. So I start to like, if things really are going past a certain time, I just literally like recalibrate kind of on the, on the back end. And I don't even tell the client sometimes I think they just notice I'm not mm. necessarily charging so much for my time anymore, but it's not, it's not a science, unfortunately. No, 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 and and it's part of, it's part of what to an outsider seems so complicated about our business. Yeah, and it's often what can be 
unsettling for clients when they speak to several different designers and get several different answers to cost structure or fees or how people sure. work, right? Because everyone is trying to find their own right formula based on the size of your team and your time demands and past projects yeah. that you've that you've done, right? And and all of that. And we and we try and bring as much data as we can to the process, but there's so yeah. much that is is just unknown. And you experience it in an interesting way too, also running a retail operation, right? And seeing all of the logistical challenges that are going on there, the inventory, but yeah. also the, the ebb and flow of supply and demand can often be a useful indicator for you about the other business, I assume. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're, they're definitely different models. So they're definitely set up. You're still selling goods, right? So as designers, we are, we're selling products. So there is, there's some similarities there. Actually, there's a lot of similarities. You know, I'm going to take that back. There's so many similarities because we're also <laughs> manufacturing furniture. Yes. And we're making things for, so yeah, we, we get a gauge. We do definitely try to get a gauge. And you know, it's, I do have, an unfair advantage because when I do create pieces for clients, if it's coming from our line, it's sort of like, it's a built-in, hmm. you know, I'm easy. It's an easy sell, if you will, because they've seen it or it's easy to just create. I try not to do that too much with clients. I try to make it feel really unique to them. But yeah, I, it's a moving target. Everything's a moving target right now. There's no rhyme or reason. And I think what goes up has to come down, right? And vice versa. Yes. Gotta go back up again. I don't know. I guess that's a thing. Well, right, and and of, and of course we're going to have inflation, and of course we're going to have shortages, and of right, of course we took our eye off of this ball, and we were so focused on this, right? And we, I mean, I, to me, it's it's as clear as can be how long that's all going to take to work through, yeah. right? And how yeah. much we're going to have to slow the economy down to kind of shake out some of that inflation, and uh, that that's yeah. going to be a lot harder. And next year looks so un clear right i mean unclear yeah yeah i think i'm a very glass half full gal though so i have to be a realist of course and i, and I am but i also see things for what they are so i think if you stay super focused on your bubble really and make sure that your the clients you have customers you have are being really well taken care of um they feel good about the experience they're you know trying their best to work with you as a company, even though we're not small technically anymore, we still are. I mean, by the way, Mike and I have never borrowed a dime. We have bootstrapped this entire company's growth from day one. Um, I, I actually, that's not true. I borrowed $5,000 from my grandma. Okay. There we go. At, grandma, <laughs> venture capitalist right there. Venture right? capitalist. And I gave it back to her in six months. This was in 2012 when I used the $5,000 to buy fabric and then make pillows with it and sell it. So I paid her back with interest. Okay. FYI. Okay. I hope she did well uh, on that investment. She did yep. okay. Yeah. Okay. I think it was like one and 1.25%. Uh, really I bet she wishes she would have held on though, right? For the, for the uh, full no. ride. Oh. Giving me a little bit more than that. No, but anyway, we bootstrapped this entire right. thing. So it's now in the, with all of our expansion and stuff. I mean, I think that kind of market gets a little bit weird. Like even if we wanted to take on investment, it'd be interesting to see 
if that would even be a possibility to us. So we really have to continue, right? We have to continue to sell and succeed and do all these things. Our whole business actually depends on it because we, unlike a lot of these other companies that you see that are doing so well and so amazing, we don't have a piggy bank. We are the piggy bank. Mm. And, you know, that just to kind of bring that full circle to social media and how we all perceive things, so much of it is horseshit. It's not true. <laughs> like we are literally writing the checks. There is no bank. There is no one behind us feeding us money or investment. Like it just has been us from the start. And so when sh it gets tough out there, we feel it in a very, very different way because we don't have a backup. And and you've and you've spoken in in the past of this of of this giant overhead. All of a sudden, when you start to have multiple retail doors, right, and a yes. hundred plus staff, and everything else that that goes on with your, I mean, it is a lot of overhead. It is, and we set out really early on to make sure that. Um, our employees felt really good about where they were working. So we yeah. offer full insurance, 100% paid and a 401k. Like it is a, it's a full thing. I don't even know how we've been able to do <laughs> I don't know how again. we're affording to do that. I don't really know. Much. I'm not clear. <laughs> I still don't know. I'm just told sometimes, but literally like, again, I mean, I'm so not to toot my own horn, but I am so proud of us some days because we've just literally had to figure this out on our own and we've done it without you know we have amazing help but we've done it without financial help we've just kind of the customers have been our financial support and help and without them we're literally nothing so we definitely feel the squeeze of the economy for sure but it's not i'm not scared like i said half full i think we're we're just going to keep getting through it and be okay and i have a real um positive outlook on all of it We're taking a quick break from the show to remind listeners about Leloy. Since 2004, Leloy has pushed the rug industry forward. From innovations in materials, like their trademarked cloud pile fabrication, to cutting-edge design from a range of collaborators. Some of Leloy's eight partners include the beloved lifestyle brand Rifle Paper Company, interior designers Carrier & Company, and the husband and wife duo Chris Loves Julia plus an exciting new partner coming this spring. Visit LeloyRugs.com, that's L-O-L-O-I, Rugs.com, to see them all. And make sure to follow at LeloyRugs on Instagram and TikTok. And now, back to the show. So let's talk about this positive outlook. Let's talk about this okay. glass half-full gal that you refer to so you you, you did a, a a post around thanksgiving giving thanks and 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 talking about all that you were were grateful for and yes. in it you referenced this evolving definition of what your life should look like versus what your life could look like and you sadly have have been faced with some some great health challenges that no doubt were part of what you were perhaps referring to in in that in that message so tell us about that so sorry to bring sorry to bring the room down like this but uh, no no it's okay because i also feel like sharing is 
really important. I mean, the mm-hmm. amount of people that have approached me to just thank me actually for coming out and talking about it. It's a very complicated, um, unfortunate disease and it doesn't, Oh, I skipped ahead too much. I was <laughs> diagnosed with, uh, MS in March of 2020. So right around the time the world shut down. So did my personal world really kind of came to some bizarre crashing, not halt, but all of a sudden I was given a real hefty dose of perspective. And, you know, I have my ups and my downs. I think the first couple months were horrific. Now, um, you know, every couple months I suffer with some pretty dramatic uh, physical stuff, which is actually uh, brought on by stress. Sometimes it's brought on by all this travel that I do. It's brought on by all of these things. And I've had to really adjust, like I said, what my life was supposed to look like and now what it, it could look like, right? Like what my life could look like. It could be very different than what I thought it was going to be two, three years ago pre-diagnosis um, and just how much I've had to recalibrate after my diagnosis. Um, so there is an unpredictability talking about unpredictability and not being able to control these things that you've just had. I have to just own it. I've just, it is part of my life now. And there's been such a massive evolution in the way that I've thought about everything, right? Life is so precious and life is so fleeting. We don't know tomorrow's not a guarantee. (laughs) It's just kind of what it is. And you just have to hope that you can stay positive enough to encourage other people to support you through it um, and be there for you through it and understand the unpredictability of it and know that, you know, some days I just cannot come into work. Uh, I just don't have the energy and it's a hard one. That's the hardest thing I think I've ever had to deal with. Yeah. I know that as you were just saying, managing stress is such an important part of trying to to keep MS under control. And I know medications help, but also as much as you can. And here we are in such a stressful business, in such a stressful time. And as you outlined earlier, there are so many calls upon your time. Yeah. How do you think about that differently now through this lens of self- care and, and, and needing to yeah. mind what you, what you do. Yeah. I brought up delegation because it's really important. I, um, depend so heavily on this incredible team and I'm surrounded by such an amazing group of men and women who are really just so lovely and supportive and understanding and really accept this human condition that I can't control, right? So I've tried to create a space in my business where my employees feel empowered to own it. And for my clients to understand as well, as we onboard new clients, that my involvement is there for sure, but it's a lot less face-to-face and that I've you know worked for years to build a team underneath me that can absolutely handle every single thing I can probably more. And um, from an aesthetics perspective, they're so on it. They understand completely 
the way that it needs to look, it's still being run across my eyes at, you know, at all points, but it's, I'm less in the, the trenches really dealing with the day to day. And my team is so incredibly capable of doing that. And that has been a real change for me because I was such a control freak and wanted to own everything and control everything. And I, I just can't do that anymore. And there's the beauty of that a little bit in being, you know, given this disease, as crazy as that sounds. I mean, I've had to look at it that way, too. I was able to get a perspective that some people never get. Um, how lucky am I that I, you know, ha- have such a challenge in front of me that I have to recalibrate and allow others to take care of things without me having to control every single aspect. And that is, there's so much beauty in just that revelation, really. And I wonder how that perspective that you've been given, I wonder how it has altered your priorities, how it's made you think differently about what you're rushing towards or what you what you want to get to. Yeah, I really have had to think about that a lot too. And I believe that I really love these collaborations that I do. Um, it feels like that's a way for me to, um, you know, have companies really do what they do best and me to kind of put my spin on it, if you will, and then let them really take it to the finish line and then help on the back end with the marketing and all the other things that I can provide in the sales. Um, and then, you know, I, I really am hoping that the model in my company with the design team is that they just continue to own these projects. My involvement in it again is, is really from an editor's perspective. (laughs) I'm editing Mm. more than I am, you know, going on site so many different times. And we have so many out of state projects that that gets a little taxing on me. And then for shop, you know, that, that feels like a, that's a pretty secure and settled what I do there. It's, it's really just so creative and, and, just the brand as a whole, just being involved in all the photo shoots and what the products look like is what you enjoy so much and and where you really like spending yeah. your time and and it sounds like future product development happening there, yes, lots of that actually, so much of that is going on right now, which is great, and it's it it allows us to be able to continue to offer not only more products, but it's creative. And again, that's the part where I feel like I shine. I don't really think I laugh all the time. Like no one really wants to hire me to give my opinion on business and everything else. I mean, you obviously wanted to talk to me about it, which I'm still confused why, but (laughs) yes. Why did I choose that subject of all things to talk to you about business Business. of what What? is happening? Um, but no, I think that clients are really hiring me for a creative vision and, and trusting that I've been able to, you know, put together a team that can make that vision happen. We, we talked earlier in, in, in wrapping up, we talked earlier about how you taught yourself WordPress or you taught yourself Photoshop, how along the way did you learn this resilience of yours how did you maintain this positive attitude and approach and the and the strength 
that you clearly have to to do all of this in the way that you that you do with the with the fun and the personality that you that you bring to it yeah um quite honestly i think you have to have a a screw loose really i mean i think anybody <laughs> really that i'm just a little soft in the head yeah that... i think so i think in order to take on all of this you have to i'm really not scared of a lot i'm scared of the unknown for sure i don't like to be I don't like the unpredictability of some things for sure, but I think you have to just not think about it anything too much. And I know that that sounds like the weirdest bit of advice, like, oh, okay, Amber, lucky for you to say, but I think if I had stopped and analyzed too hard in the very beginning where I should be, what I could be, all these other things, I don't think I would have been able to focus on just one foot in front of the other. Because it is, it can be very discouraging. And I think, you know, as soon as you get knocked down, and I have, and I still do every day, um, you just got to get back up, brush yourself off and keep moving forward. Well, and I, and I know that you've often talked about not judging your start yes. by somebody else's midpoint in where they are, right? Yes, and, right. And I think that's such great advice in in not comparing yourself to where somebody else might might be and i think there are a lot of people who compare themselves to you yeah or try to right sure. sure and i think it looks so easy and i think unfortunately that's again i mentioned that highlight reel we're sharing yes. what we're sharing right it's 25 percent right. of the reel you don't see the flipping sleepless nights where I'm up all night freaking out. Like I said, bootstrapping an entire company with over a hundred employees every, you know, it's, it gets dicey, right? You have to be a little, you don't see that part. Yeah. And while it looks maybe effortless and easy and something to sought after or whatever, whatever romanticized vision or version we have of whatever my journey has been, there has been so much behind the scenes that have been very, very trying and very hard. And yes, I'm positive. And yes, I have a good attitude for sure. But God, there's been stuff that it, it has almost taken me down. I mean, truly almost just made me go, well, F this, I'm out. Yeah. I'm not doing this anymore. Uh, I'm going to go work at Trader Joe's. That sounds way more predictable and fun. And I've heard they get great benefits too. Easy life, right? <laughs> Find Amber at Trader Joe's. That's where she's signing she'll be. books still, really, with, or boobs. Actually, I'll just be signing boobs at the Trader Joe's. Yes, because I do that too with her people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. With, with her people. Amber, thank you so much for making the time. I I really appreciate it. Oh my gosh, what a wonderful experience! This was really fun. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.